So what's up, everybody? It is Thursday, July 12th, and this is Raphael Garcia back with Shawan Humes for episode 91 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. First and foremost, thank you for taking your time out to listen to this podcast today, whether you're doing it live or doing it on demand. Um, Be sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel here, and you can always find our newest content at MMARatings.net. To follow me at rgarcia underscore sports on Twitter. And as always, thank you to my partner in crime, Shawan Humes, who is joining me once again from his home where he is probably a top candidate for father of the year. Sir, how are you doing today? Uh, not too bad. I, I'm trying to see if I might end up having to coach my kid's team in this Dallas tournament. So we'll, find, we'll see in a, in a little bit. Don't act like you're not going to do it. Like, let's just go ahead and yeah. cut to the chase. Tell the 12, whoever you got to tell, you're going to do it and go ahead and get out there and be super dad. You're probably going to ref, probably going to dress up and try playing the game to help your girls out. Like, let's go ahead and just tell the truth. Yeah, well, they've, they've had me work in the, uh, either the books or the scoreboard for the past, like, eight tournaments. I'm like, I'm not even getting paid to do this. And let me tell you, those referees be talking talking stuff to you, too. Man, you got you to gotta get that together. I'm like, I'm a volunteer, dude. I don't have to do nothing. Listen, man, but just you all you got to do is just throw a chair like Bobby Knight. Do it one good time, man. and they'll leave you alone. I, I actually saw a sixteen year, a thirty five year old woman try to pick a fight with a sixteen year old, a sixteen year old girl, because the thirty five year old woman's daughter's team lost. So she tried to jump out the bleachers to fight, to fight a child. Uh, yeah, I bet it, you she'll catch that fade though. She, she would. I, I had to step in between, but let me tell you, you, ever have kids? You get them into high AAU kind of sport, especially basketball. Just you know how to fight, so you're good. I know how to fight, so I'm good, but. You might have to bring those skills to bear because these people get these people get crazy. If I ever curse this world with children, my, they're they're gonna be giving everybody fades. That's all. I, that's all I know how to do. Just just make sure before the summer start, you you in top shape. You're loose. Got that triangle ready. That reversal. That rear naked choke. You gotta have them tight. Every, right before summer, I start upping my miles jogging, hitting the heavy bag a little bit more, get my sparring in just in case. Just in case. I, I'll tell you one last thing before we talk MMA. I told my daughters, they're like, well, all these guys are acting crazy. What if they come out of the come out of the bleachers? I told them, they'll get one foot off the bleachers. There will not be a second step. You get one step towards my kid. There will not yep. be a second step. So take your ass back up in the bleachers. Very factual, my good man. Very factual. And, you know, we sitting here talking about the bleachers, but I guess after UFC 226, we had Brock Lesnar come out the bleachers off the bench and jump into the octagon again. But before we even get into that aspect of the conversation, let's talk about Daniel Cormier where a year ago, a meme was floating around where Cormier was making the, making the ugly cry face and everybody was picking on him, laughing at him for the last few months and years after that, year after that. Now we see a meme floating around where he's holding two UFC titles over his head. Only the second man to ever, or the second fighters to ever do this He's the, what, the fifth to hold two titles in two weight classes. And this is where we are today, man. Um, a guy who will forever have the asterisk of of John Jones on his career. But he took a major step in kind of cementing his place. I don't, I'm not going to say totally disassociating himself from Jones. But he took a pretty large step when he stopped Stipe in the first round of the heavyweight um, title fight at UFC 226. What were some of your thoughts about that? Well, as far as Cormier, I, I'm 
I'm always conflicted because he was saying he was the best of all time. And I'm like, I don't know if you can be the best of all time when you've taken two losses. You, you're not even really the man at your own division. I know he I know he got the belt because Jones is no longer able to continue, but he never beat him. So it's really hard to say that you're the man. And it, when you, you, given how hard he struggled at those at that weight division against some of these guys who aren't really top-end fighters, it, it kind of takes away from his argument that he's the GOAT. But once again, he did get the belt. He has defended it. Which is more than Connor did, and he beat the guy who was the who was in the argument for being the best, if not the best, UFC heavyweight in history. He beat the guy, and he beat him decisively by stoppage. So it's hard to argue against the point that he, if he's not the goat, he's got to be in the top three. So we're gonna come back to the greatest of all time conversation because I I've been listening to a lot of different sides and a lot of different hot takes on that. So that is that is definitely a topic we're going to touch upon tonight. But um, let's talk about the current, what's going on right now. Now you have Cormier, who's holding two titles, 205 and heavyweight. You have men who are obviously jockeying for position to fight him. You have Curtis Blades, you have Brock Lesnar up at heavyweight. Then you have um, Alexander Gustafsson, and even the name Shogun has come up at 205. If you are the individual in charge of, of the UFC, what do you do with this man next? Do you make him defend the light heavyweight title and then come back and defend the heavyweight title in January against Brock Lesnar? I mean, it's already July. How do you fit that, those two fights into this schedule, knowing that he intends to retire at the end of March? I don't know that you fit both fights into the schedule. I mean, even though he's beaten, he's essentially cleaned out the light the light heavyweight division. Anything goes wrong, he tears a knee, he breaks a hand, he gets injured and loses the fight because he can't continue. That takes the Lesnar fight off the table. And the Lesnar fight, especially after how they built it up, that's the biggest fight that can be made right now. And the UFC is trying to have big events that draw on big ratings because they haven't been able to generate them. They don't have any stars who can generate enough interest in and of themselves. Daniel Cormier can't. Stipe Miocic can't. Um, the only person who's been able to do it recently is Conor McGregor. And if if Daniel and Brock can make this fight, it'll it'll be the closest thing to a a McGregor like pay per view that they have. They don't have any stars. They don't have people with enough dominance or charisma to really carry carry a card like a McGregor would, or even like a I don't I don't know. Holly Holm was able to sell some. Cyborg is able to sell some. They they just don't have anybody. So the question is, do you risk this huge payday? And this huge big fight so that you can so that Cormier can defend the light heavyweight belt instead of just dropping it. And the UFC's already they've already lost out on big fights because because of this. Remember when Misha Tate won the title and instead of just waiting on Ronda, what did she do? Fight Amanda Nunes. How much bigger would that third fight between Misha and Ronda have been if she would have just said, you know what, I'm not gonna fight Nunes. I'm just gonna sit out and wait for Ronda to come back. That could have been easy, two million seller, maybe three. But instead she got beat by Nunes and we get Nunes versus Rousey, which sold well. But would have sold better if it would have been Tate versus Rousey instead of Nunes versus Rousey. Are you willing to give up that potential payday and all the coverage that comes with it just so just so that DC could headline a pay-per-view with a meaningless light heavyweight fight that's not going to get any ratings, it isn't going to get make them any real money? So let's start let's start with the ratings aspect of this conversation first, because what we did see was um, we saw that the Cormier Stipe fight did what they're saying sub 400 buys, like around 400k buys. So there's that issue um, where that fight may not have drawn as much as people were hoping. So we do have the situation where we're looking at guys where it's like, okay, 
what do we need to do to get a massive payday, which the UFC has been trying to push and trying to do. Hell, this fight, this card right here could have been a massive payday if Holloway and, and Ortega could have been on the card. Maybe that would have bumped it up to 500k, five to 600. So, of course, that makes the Brock Lesnar fight that much more enticing because I don't care what you say, unless if Connor is at the top of the card, pairing C, uh, DC against Shogun or Gustafsson isn't going to get it done. I don't even know if pairing him with Brock is going to get them over a million uh, right now, just because where their business has been struggling, like their pay-per-view model has been struggling across the board. It might get them 800, which would be a massive uh, win for them right now. But I can honestly say beyond a shadow of a doubt that that fight would get them over a million. The initial rumor was that they were expecting DC and Brock to fight in November, which would have also put them around the time that Connor could have fought Khabib. Now that that card would easily have done over a million, million five buys. But right now we got to look at it like if I was in charge, I figure out a way that we keep DC on the shelf until January to get this fight. Um, to get this fight there, they, look at look at what they did with Tyron Woodley, who was healthy, and they threw together an, an interim fight for the welterweight division. They throw around interim belts like it's nothing. They should definitely consider doing that for the 205 pound division i wouldn't necessarily directly strip dc of the the title because he's still been an active champion uh they can they can throw an interim title belt uh interim title fight in there with shogun and alexander and let them have it out while we wait for dc and stipe to be in um to be in January. Now that means that Stipe would have to defend the belt against the winner before he retired. And that may be very well be his, his retirement fight. And we won't get that John Jones third fight, but honestly, I don't think we're getting that fight anyway. Yeah. I, I don't think he would even defend the belt. I think it would be the same thing as GSP. He would retire if possible as a double champion. And then whoever Gustafsson, whoever has the belt will become the real champion. And then they'd have a tournament for the, or a, basically a heavyweight tournament for the, the belt that he's giving up. Because there's not enough big money fights out there, and you just can't risk him getting hurt, risk him losing. You can't even really risk him lo- looking bad because to all the hardcore fans, yeah, we know the DC is better than him. But to the people who are fans of Brock, who still think Brock has it, still think he can pull it off, if DC struggles with Alexander Gustafsson, how does that make? How does that drum up interest for a fight with Brock Lesnar? If Gustafsson's taking him down and controlling him, how does that drum up fight for a Le- for a Lesnar fight? It doesn't drum up any interest, and there's nobody in the heavyweight division or the light heavyweight division who's going to drum up the interest and has the charisma to pull off any sort of pay-per-view. DC can talk. Brock Lesnar can talk. That's going to create interest and maintain interest. Again, somebody like Stipe, as good a fighter as he is, he's not very exciting. He's not very charismatic. He doesn't have any catchphrases. He's just a guy who goes out there and fights. It's hard to draw any sort of major numbers when you're facing a guy who only goes out there to fight. So, so Brock Lesnar about- is... Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. So let's talk about that. You mentioned interest. You said it a few different times. You mentioned interest a few different times. So first thing I want to say is this. The spectacle that occurred at, at after Cormier won the title where he called Brock in, into the cage. First question, did that make you any more intrigued in this potential fight? Uh, only, intrigued from the fight only intrigued from the aspect that it's entertaining. Even though I know it's, it's kind of fake, it's kind of set up, that's what they have planned, it's still interesting. Like, you could... You can know how, like, like I, I hope I forgot who told me this, but the movie The Titanic. Everybody knew how the Titanic ended, but people still watched it. It's the execution. 
I knew the Bronx was going there. I knew he was probably going to cause a scene, but it was still entertaining to me because that's the stuff you like to see fighters do. You want to see guys kind of call another guy out. And I know everybody says it's not martial arts, it's not classy, it's not honorable, but everybody likes a little bit of drama. Everybody likes a little hint of you don't know what's going to happen, and they they appeal to our baser instincts as as fight fans and as sports fans. We got the confrontation we wanted. We got a little bit of talk. We got a little bit of separation. We had one guy out of control, and people just eat that up. Now, there's some people who want the martial arts spirit. That's great. Those people don't get you to a million buys. They don't break records. They're not the guys who, who get you on ESPN. That's not the kind of stuff that does it. What we saw on the cage afterwards is what draws attention and what fuels pay-per-views and what gives them those million buys, 800 buys, whatever you want to call it, 800,000 buys, whatever you want to call it. So with that in mind there, um, what do you think about Brock Lesnar, quote unquote, jumping the jumping the line? Because he, I mean, he hasn't won a fight since what, 2010, when he defeated uh, Shane Carwin, right? Because um, his last fight was overturned. Overturned, yeah. So, and you know, he 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 does what he wants. He's Brock. He comes and goes. He even does this with the with the. WWE comes and goes, does as he pleases. Do you have some hesitation, I guess, or does his ability to jump the line, does that entice anger from you in any way, shape, or form? Not really, because the thing about it is, and we've noticed this a lot with fighters, they're very hypocritical. And I don't say that disrespectfully, but the same guys who say, like you with the lighter weight, don't worry about Connor fight your way up the division, fight your way up the division, then somebody gets in a big spot or they get a, a big ranking or big win or they get a position for a title fight, what was the first thing they did? Start talking Conor McGregor. You just win an interim title belt. Instead of talking about your interim title belt and your future reign, you're talking about Conor McGregor. Before a title shot, what are you doing? Talk about Conor McGregor. Everybody says do it the right way, do the honorable way, but then when they get in position, they're trying to move ahead and get the payday because this is a business at the end of the, end of the, end of the, end of the day. It's great to have these huge fights. It's great to be a part of these events. But those events and those memories don't feed your kids. They don't give you a pension. They don't give you anything to retire on. What gets you retirement money is being part of big events, being co-mains or mains, and being a champion. Brock Lesnar is a, an easy, maybe not an easy payday, but he's a big payday. And I can't blame anybody for wanting to go for the big payday. This is a very short time career. You need to make the most money you can against whoever is going to make you the most money. So I have no problem with it. I mean, as far as the sport, the UFC rankings are always jacked up. They got they switch it back and forth. People don't make weight. They get ranks. People lose fights. They move up in division. They move up in ranks. This is this this is par for the course. Only difference is somebody is going to get a huge amount of money for taking this Brock Lesnar fight. Daniel Cormier has earned that right to get a payday. He's been a good enough spokesman. He's been a good enough face of the sport. He's accomplished enough that he should get a payday. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you there on that there at all because I, I agree. I think that he definitely deserves a payday for what he's done. I feel like all at, – at, in a strong regard, a lot of these guys deserve a payday, and we should definitely include um, DC in that conversation. Now, let's talk about someone who isn't getting talked about as much. We got Stipe Miocic who broke a – he broke the, the heavyweight title defense record. And he did it in, you know, pretty much dominating fashion. And he lost, he lost his belt. He got cold clocked, and he lost his belt. Um, he hasn't really been. He showed up at the uh, press conference, did his work there, 
but you haven't really heard too much from him. What are your thoughts about that? Like, should we, should he be given a title shot to kind of recoup himself? Like, what does he need to do to get back in that picture? Well, first of all, part of him just doing his job, showing up, that's what he always does. That's why nobody's talking about him. There wasn't a big emotional speech afterward. There wasn't a promise to get better and do better and an impassioned plea about how much the belt meant to him. He was very matter of fact. He was better, very businesslike. While you admire that, that doesn't draw interest. Everybody's like, I respect that. I respect that. But that doesn't draw interest. So that's, in a ca- nutshell, that's part of the problem that he has in marketing him and making him a face. He's just he's just not that engaged. He's just not that interested. He's very good at his job, but he doesn't make it exciting or interesting for you to pay attention to him when he's not doing his actual job, which is fighting. Um, as far as him being a, a rematch or getting a shot at a title fight, he's the only other people who were closer were Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou. They both took themselves out of title talk, title contention for the next fight or two based on their performance. So really, he's still the leader in the clubhouse. He's defended the belt three times. He essentially walked through half the division on his way to the title, the other half, and winning it. And he's only lost to one of the greatest fighters of all time. If, in fact, uh, DC, you know, after he wins, DC might stick around for a Stipey rematch. And if he doesn't, even if he doesn't stick around, if Stipey wins one more fight, he's right back in the mix for a title shot because he's so far ahead of every other heavyweight. Name another heavyweight who's had as impressive a streak against his, against his, his impressive competition as Stipey. There's nobody. Derek Lewis's opponents he's beaten aren't great. His last fight was terrible. Francis Ngannou got stomped by Stipe. His last fight was terrible. I mean, Arvlovsky lost. Reem's on a losing streak. Verdum's on a losing streak. Who's the guy? Who could jump? Who could leapfrog in front of Stipe without a sizable pay-per-view um, paycheck to back to back it up? Brock Lesnar is moving ahead because because he's marketable. Who else is going to move ahead of Stipe based on that? I agree with you there, sir. I'm not going to um, argue that point there. I think that I wouldn't be surprised if I was the individual doing the speaking and planning for Stipe. I would tell him to sit it out and and wait. Um, I wouldn't want to see him get into the cage with someone like a Curtis Blades who can catch him sleeping and kind of hold him down and grind out a, a win. I wouldn't want to see him get in there with, with a slugger like a like a JDS rematch or something like like let's say JDS wins on Saturday and then demands a rematch and he gets placed against uh, Stipe again. I wouldn't want to see that because you never know kind of how those situations can play out. So if I was kind of running his camp and talking to him and being in his ear, I would tell him to wait it out until next year because if if we look forward to March, let's say let's say the spring summertime of twenty nineteen, we may really be in a situation where we don't have a heavyweight champion. Think about this. Because if let's say Stipe and Lesnar fight February, March, okay? Stipe mm. loses, or uh, uh, excuse me, not Stipe, excuse me, excuse me, Lesnar and DC fight sometime between March, February, March of 2019. Cormier wins, you know, he's vacating the title and retiring. Lesnar wins, we have no idea what this guy is going to do. We don't know if he's going to pass a drug test. So we don't know what this guy is going to do. He may walk away again. And just that's just because he's got a huge payday, and that's what he does. If he's if he's smart, he should walk away. You just beat one of the top three greatest fighters of all time. You took his belt. You don't follow that up with anything. You walk away, and then gonna then go negotiate with the WWE again as the UFC heavyweight champion. Exactly, and 
while a lot of do believe the WWE is not going to bring him back because how his how his current run is is going, I don't think they'll ever bring him back. I do see. Wait, in, do, you, do you think do you think they bring him back if he wins and wins in impressive fashion? How do you not so. bring that guy? Really? Yeah, they got Ronda now. Too. They got Ronda. Now. I know, but I mean, I know, but the 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 wrestling baddest man in the world. And the real baddest man in the world? I don't know. I don't know. They don't give it one more shot. I I'll mean, put it like this. You know- I'll put it like this, dude. This past Monday, the Monday Night Raw, which is the show that Brock Lesnar's on, just did 2.47 million viewers, I think, and that is the lowest ratings that that the WWE has done in the history of Monday Night Raw. Wow. That show's been on what 25 years now. And that's the lowest point that they've been in for 25 years. And a lot of people are pointing towards the fact that Brock Lesnar is the like, the big main attraction. And he hasn't been on the show since April. Wow. So I wouldn't be surprised if they don't bring him back. And I wouldn't be mad at them for that. But that's, that's just where I stand when it comes to the pro wrestling side of it. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they don't bring him back at all. So let's move on to that co-main event there where we saw before, first. Before, before, we, before we go on to co-main event, I just I just want to touch a little, little bit on the actual fight with Cormier. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, definitely. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. That now, did actually I, I predicted Stipe to win. And if you remember correctly, I thought it was – I thought Stipe's power, DC's shaky durability, and the fact that Stipe was the cleaner and more diverse, diversely skilled boxer was going to be the determining factor. I still feel Stipe could have won that fight. I felt – and, and Dominic Cruz broke this down, I think, on Lou Thomas's show, where he set the trap for Stipe, letting him have the underhook so that he could get the position where DC could could work him over. But if you remember, what I said in the fight was, what Stipe should do is use his jab and his long right hand and his ability to fight coming in on angles and exiting on angles and fighting on his back foot. And that way, he'd be, be able to stick DC at the end, kind of beat him up, force him to get through his hands before, before he could attempt any sort of clinch. What Stipe seemed to do is kind of take it to DC, trying to take him, taking him down for a brief moment, getting that underhook, trying to fight with him in the pocket and fight with him in the clinch. And to me, that's where essentially he lost the fight. If he would have, and I don't, I don't know this for sure, but in my opinion, if he would have fought off the back foot and made DC work to trap him, work to cut the cage off, and work to get around that jab and work to get through those punching combinations, then DC doesn't have the opportunities to get into those clinches nearly as easily. DC wastes a lot of energy trying to walk through shots and eat shots. DC wastes a lot of energy trying to track Stipe down. And then when DC starts to slow and those shots, those shots start to build up through attrition, then you, turn the, then you turn it on. You turn the pressure on. Then you get extra physical. Then you start muscling him around, going for the takedowns and working the clinch when you're taking a little bit off his fastball because he's wasted so much energy and time trying to cut the cage on you. And trying to fo- and trying to follow you while he's walking into shots left and right, but when Stipe kind of gave up that that empty space and decided he was going to pressure him and meet Cormier's pressure head on, to me, even though he had a, he had spots of success, I felt that that wasn't the best the best approach to it. I think he could have won that way, but why not exploit the holes in DC's game, which is DC's lack of length, DC's lack of correct footwork, and DC's inability to really cut the cage off on somebody who's got range and mobility advantages over him. And he didn't play it that way. He played it like, I'm the bigger man. I'm going to come down here, pressure you, get my hands on you, rough you up, and kind of kind of put you out of it. And it kind of backfired on him. And I, I will I will mention this because a couple people haven't mentioned it. DC did kind of thumb him and rake him across the face before he landed those shots. And when he did when he did that, even though Stipe will never make the excuse, it did happen. And Stipe's vision 
his ability to roll in the pocket, his, his ability to counter kind of went away. He started getting a hit a lot more after he kind of got raked and thumbed a little bit. But once again, if Stipe would have fought at distance and fought off his back foot and pivoted and exited at angles and entered on angles, DC never would have been in a, in a position to do that to him or not, not do it repeatedly. It wouldn't have had as much effect. But he kind of, like I said, did DC's work for him by getting in range where DC could press him and get his hands on him. And that was not what I thought he was going to do. I figured he would just outbox him over five and then turn it on, outbox him over the first two rounds and turn it on late and put him out and get him out of there. That's what Jones did, essentially. Jones moved around, moved around, let him extend himself. When he started slowing down, Jones turned it on. In both fights, that's what Jones did. And for some reason, Stipe didn't follow that blueprint. It seemed like he was out there to prove a point and show the smaller guy that he was he was the boss and he was in control of the situation. And, and I just felt he kind of gave Daniel opportunities to win that had he fought off his back foot and really boxed him up, Daniel never would have So let me get this straight, sir. Are you saying that... Stipe used, or excuse me, DC used the good old uh, Hulk Hogan thumb in the eye trick. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, thumb in the eye. You want to call them? You want Hulk Hogan slash John Jones, or you might even work a little Ric Flair in there with that with a rake. I mean, if you watch the video, he he thumbed him and he raked across his face before he he landed those shots. I'm not saying the shots weren't hard. I'm not saying the shots weren't clean. But somebody, if you're even if you're sparring and somebody thumbs you in the eye or pokes you in the eye a little bit, you're going to hesitate. You can't see the shots coming as well, so, which means you can't roll with them, and it means you're a little bit more stationary. And if you're stationary, that means I can really load up on my shot. And even though DC isn't, in my opinion, has lost a step athletically, he's still one of the better athletes in the heavier division. So you got a guy throwing at full speed, loading up on his shots, putting his shots together in a short distance from you. That's going to lead to a knockout, and especially if you can't move your head and you're sitting, sitting there you're sitting duck for the shots. What's going to happen? You're going to take full power shots from a guy who can hit fairly hard, and it's most likely going to end up getting you rocked if not put away, and that's what happened. Stipe got rocked and then put away. I, I still think it's a fight. I, I said I still think it's a fight he could win, but like like I said, when you're you have a you have a clear advantage in footwork and distance, why not maximize that? Why not instead of giving DC opportunities to get his hands on you in exchange with you? Why not move away? Make him chase you. He chases you, forces you to the cage, pivot off. Now he's stuck on the cage, and you're on the outside peppering him with shots. If he's coming in, you, you, you come in on the double jab. When he comes forward, exit on the angle. He's out of position. Now that he walks right into that right hook, right into that right hand. But he didn't, he didn't do that. He didn't, he didn't set traps for DC. DC gave him that underhook. He set a trap, and Stipe decided he was going to try and take advantage of it. And while it was a good play overall as far as the technique, Sometimes you got to look at the fight in a bigger picture as far as who you're fighting. If Damian, if I knock Damian Maya down and he looks like he's stunned, even if he's stunned and I look like I could ground and pound him, am I jumping on the ground with Damian Maya to finish him? Hell no. Damian's got to get his ass up and fight me. I'm not going down there with him. I'm not going down there with him at all. That's crazy. You know, it's like when when Nunes fought Rousey. Did she let Rousey get her in her clinches? No, she kept her range. Spun her, turned her, landed shots, pinned her up against the cage, finished her. You don't want to get in a clinch with Ronda Rousey. I don't care how shot you think she is. You get into a clinch with her, there's a better than average chance. If not the first time, the second time, you're getting tossed, you're getting finished. DC gave him something, and DC is a world-class wrestler who's been able to translate his world-class wrestling to mixed martial arts. Why do you go for that when you can just stay outside and make him have to work when you, where, where you have a clear, clear, clear advantage? That, that was my only concern. And, and even though he did well... 
I believe he would have won the fight had he maximized his range and his footwork advantages. I'm not questioning his coaches. I'm not saying they did a bad job. Strategically, they made the right calls to a degree, and technically they made the right calls. They saw a hole, they attacked it. But I don't know if I ever tiptoe on that on that line or walk on that ledge against the guy with the, who, who could only win the fight in that one space. As we talked about before, I was like, DC needs to get to the clinch, make him work to get to it, beat him up on the way to it so he can't take advantage of it. They didn't do that. So then when he got the clinch, he was able to do whatever he wanted after the eye poke again. I, I just can't ignore that. It was it was blatant. I mean, I, if you saw it, you saw it. I'm not going to argue that. I'm not going to argue that point that um, argue what you saw there, sir. Yeah. So like I said, it, it was it was a good fight. DC, just just to close it out, DC showed an example of when you don't have when you have a weakness or a technical flaw, you attack the you attack the superior technique with strategy. He knew that he knew Stipe could stay out of range and pick him off and turn it up late. So what did he do? He set the trap because DC knows his footwork isn't good enough to work in the range without getting beat up. And he knows he can't jump in the range exploding athletically. You can't do that. You can do that two or three times. By the fourth time, you're getting telegraphed. You're getting slow. You're walking into big shots. You're getting knocked out. So what he did is he baited him. He gave him a hole so that Stipe would come to him and get and he could get Stipe in a position where he could dictate things. Because even though Stipe is good, fairly okay in the clinch. He's not Daniel Cormier in the clinch. And the minute he got into those clinching exchanges, those wrestling exchanges, he, he started losing the fight. He started losing the fight. The fight started evening out. Even when he took him down, he couldn't hold him down for any period of time. He took him down. DC was right back up. And he could have just stayed off his back foot and just picked him off. I really believe that would have been the difference in the fight if he made DC deal with the length and the footwork. But they, they went another route. And, you know, sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose some. But I think I would have told him early on, use the, as I said before, use the distance, use the range, use the angles, use the pivot. Wear them out, then turn it on halfway through the second round into the third. True. Some good breakdown there, sir. Um, let's talk about that co-main event where Francis Ngannou and Derek Lewis, I think they landed a combined 31 shots over 15 minutes of action in what a lot of people are calling the worst UFC fight of all time. You know, there's some debate about that, but we definitely saw what anyone wasn't expecting to see um i kind of looked at this fight like i need to watch this whole thing because if i turn my head someone's gonna get knocked out and i'm gonna miss everything but that i wish you would have i wish you would have turned your head just so we could have found out (laughs) is that like that like that did not go down so what went wrong here man like there's so many different things to talk about people are talking about Derek lewis's uh back issues that were bothering him people are talking about i mean francis and ganu's statement we're going to talk about that as well too when we get to that that point but what really went wrong here in this co-main event? I have some aspects I want to talk about there, but I want to hear your um, talk, your view on that first. It really comes down to this. Both guys are counter guys. We mentioned this before. I did a whole article on Derek Lewis saying he's not elite. Part of the reason Derek Lewis is not elite is because he doesn't th- throw consistency, he doesn't throw volume, and he lacks the skills to work his way into range. What he lets you do is kind of what Rashad Evans does. He doesn't, he, he doesn't have a good mastery of distance, or gauge of distance. So what he does is he lets you come forward. He'll he'll take shots. He'll take leg kicks. He'll take kicks in the stomach. He'll let when you come in, he explodes. Or he waits till you hang around the pocket a little bit because you're hitting him so easily. You get comfortable, and then he explodes with a counter. He does not lead. He doesn't really pressure outside of just walking towards you. He doesn't put combinations. He doesn't feint and then with a jab and then follow through with the leg kick. He doesn't throw a short combination and then follow through with the body kick. He doesn't do any of that. He waits and then he counters. In Ganu. 
even though he's had a bunch of early first round finishes, it's not really a matter of him leading either. He lands one or two big shots off a counter, either countering your footwork or countering any attempts you make at aggression, and then he finishes you. He's not a guy who throws volume. He's not a destroyer either. He's a counter guy. And half the reason he's getting these knockouts is because he's catching guys as they're coming in, throwing a shot, or he catches them on the end of the punches because they're trying to leap away from them. You had two counterfighters. So it was very possible that they could just end up staring at each other. I just figured at some point, Lewis would get brave and throw something big, and Nganu, being the better athlete and the better striker, would either block it and counter or step back, hit a pivot, hit an angle, and then counter, and then blow Lewis out of the water. What ended up happening was Nganu was so tentative and so hesitant, he didn't trust himself enough to fire because he didn't want to get caught. He was essentially throwing punches, the few punches he threw, so he wouldn't get hit. He, he had no urgency at all. And seeing that Lewis's back was out like that, all he had to do was land a couple shots to the body. Lewis would have been done. Land one or two good shots, land a takedown. It would have been over for Lewis. There's no way Lewis could have continued. Even in that, with that little amount of volume, Lewis was staggering around like a, like a, like a crippled man. All he had to do was put two or three shots together, land a takedown. Fight is over because Lewis couldn't do a damn thing. But Ngannou was just so tentative and he was scared to get countered. He was scared to run into something. He was scared of any sort of offensive measure. So he just stayed back and, and basically he didn't ever attack until Lewis made him fight. And Lewis, either because his back was hurt or because he realized he, he landed the most shots and he's already winning the fights, Lewis said, I'm not taking any chances. No need for, no need for me. I've landed cleaner shots. I've shown some aggression. This guy's just running. No need for me to run in and, and do something stupid. I'm just going to do my typical thing, wait. If he comes in on me, I'll throw something. Otherwise, I'm riding the rest of this fight out because I've got it won. So let's talk about Lewis first because what we had in him is a man who was clearly hurt. Um, he's retired once because of this back injury. He's talked about it plenty of times where it's just not, it's not getting better for him um and now we're at a point where it's now we're at a point where he's clear it's, it's damaging his not his reputation but um it's damaging the division if you think about it he's the most yeah. he has all this interest outside the cage he's got a, he's got a, he's kind of funny and witty inside the cage he has big finishes but the ufc can't do anything with him because a you know, he put on a horrible fight. That's fresh in fans' minds. B, in every fight he is losing until he wins. And C, and most importantly, you don't know when his back's going to give out. What if you put him in a title fight and he somehow wins a title? And then he has to retire because his back's out. So you have the most charismatic, one of the more exciting heavyweights, and you can't depend on him because you don't know if he's physically going to be able to compete moving forward. You know, I'm going to be honest. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he retires now. You know, he's already why did he come back? If his back was so bad, why did he come back? Did they offer more money? Did they re-up him? Like, what what made him come back? Because back you don't you don't really get over back problems. Yeah, you don't. I mean, and he made uh, a pretty good penny. I think it was a uh, one fifty six that he made uh, for. Let me see what he made. For. I think it's one fifty six. I feel like it was six figures that he made for this fight there. So I mean, he didn't go broke. Like he didn't take a bad payday or anything like like that. He definitely made some good money. So. I, but the way he's talking about this injury, I, and like you said, back injuries do not go away. I would not be surprised if he does decide to permanently walk away because of his back and, and the way it, it's bothering him. So it would be interesting to see what happens next with him. One of, the few, one of the few draws they have at heavyweight, a guy who knows how to talk, who is fairly exciting, 
who is imposing and has some interest in and out of the cage. And now he might be gone just like that. That's in a division that is super thin. And on the other side of the conversation, we have um, Francis Ngannou, who's another guy who could have been a huge draw for this heavyweight division. But, I mean, that may be all but gone because of the way he fought. And what's even worse is the way that uh, Dana White talked about it. The way It's interesting listening to the way everybody's been talking about it because not only has Dana been talking about his ego, I've been listening to some other podcasts. One I had to stop listening to because I was getting kind of upset with the way they were talking about Francis Ngannou. Not because I'm a huge fan of his, but just because they were talking too matter-of-factly. But a lot of people are look, talking about his ego and the way he acted preparing for the Stipe fight. I'm more concerned about what he said on Monday where he's talking about the fear that he had in the fight. And I and you, you see this in the piece I wrote for MMA Ratings this week where I talk about if you take his statement and you overlay it with what occurred in that Stipe fight, we may be looking at a very a truly damaged fighter. I mean, in the fourth round of that Stipe fight, he took 82 shots. I yeah. think he landed four. Like in the first round, they were close. I want to say Stipe landed 18 and he landed 12 or 14, something like that. It was relatively close. And then it went downhill and downhill fast. So I'm wondering, looking back to that fight, is this man truly a damaged fighter that we may never see return to form well there's two things the first thing is you you fought before you've been you've been in the gym whether it's grappling and you competing grappling whether it's grappling sparring mma sparring or just striking kickboxing sparring there's one thing and i've been in gyms where i've never competed but you, you you're gonna understand what i'm saying it's one thing to have a lack of skill sometimes you're not as good as somebody or you're not as athletic whatever that's one thing and people and people in the fight game will make fun of somebody he shouldn't have been in there He's not good enough. I don't want to spar with that guy. He's not enough of a challenge. That's one thing. But people are a lot more forgiving of that if you show the will to get out there and take your licks and at least try. I don't care if you're the worst fighter in the world. What's the one thing somebody will say? Yeah, he, he couldn't grab law, but he never gave up. He was tough. He, he came back out for another round. He just got whooped up in one round of sparring. He came right back out there. Was he good? No, but he kept going. That gets you respect in the gym. That gets you respect from the, people, the peers in there. It gets you respect on the nationwide scene from other fighters. What happened with Ngannou is a lot of people saw him not even try. He didn't exhibit, he didn't exhibit any, any courage. He didn't exhibit any aggression. And that's, like you said, that's what's going to stick with him the longest because it's one thing to be exposed as being one-dimensional or being limited or not being very good in the dimension you supposedly dominate. It's another thing when people question your heart or question your character. And people often call fighting a truth detector test. If you have fight in you, it will show whether it's sparring with somebody, whether it's in a real life fight, if you have it in you, it's going to show. And the thing that separates fighters from the rest of us is they're supposed to have that courage and that guts to perform at the biggest stage when all the lights on against the biggest threat. And he didn't do that. And that's, that's kind of the stigma that's going to hurt him moving forward. Even if he gets another two or three quick knockouts, it's going to be like, yeah, but once you put him in tough, once you put him in with a threat, all of a sudden he's not the same guy. And essentially, when he fought Stipe, what happened was he'd been blown through everybody. No, even when he went the distance or went further, he was dominating fights. And all of a sudden, he was in a fight where he couldn't dominate. And we talked about this after he lost the fight and before it. 
he wasn't dominating. He couldn't dictate where things went. He couldn't just get up when he wanted to. He couldn't just defend when he wanted to. He didn't just land one or two shots and guys were out. He had to fight back. And once he got into a position where he had to fight back, all of a sudden he wasn't the same guy. He had the same energy. He didn't have the same confidence. He didn't have the same aggression. And the only thing that happened was he was met with resistance. And if you crumble whenever you're met with resistance, it's going to be hard to get the fans, much less fighters, on your side. Do I think Dana should be attacking him? He's not a fighter. I don't think he should attack him the way he has. But it's hard for you to make a case to defend Nganu because of the fact of the matter is Nganu didn't show any of the traits that we attribute to fighters. He just didn't. And I'm not saying that I, not saying I would have done better. I'm just saying he didn't show any fight at all. And the, the comments after it are concerning because it's like, does he really want to be a fighter? Is he, an, is he a guy who's just good at fighting? Is he a great athlete who doesn't really have the heart for fighting? It, did he suffer a mental issue? Did Stipe just damage his psyche to the point where he doesn't want it anymore? Because he didn't really take the worst beating. I've seen guys take worse beating. We have. He didn't take the worst beating. We have seen guys take worse beatings. And I think what's also important here is that I think this is a testament to the importance of tune-up fights. Unfortunately, the way the UFC rankings work, that is impossible when you lose a heavyweight title fight and you're still ranked at number one, you can't be expected to fight number 10 or something like that. I mean, that kind of occurs in boxing where you see kind of some ranking uh, disparities like that. But in the UFC, yeah, after you, after you lose the fight, you got to build the guy back up. You yeah, have to build him back it, up. They don't allow for that opportunity to occur. That's why you have guys like Anthony Pettis going on major skids, even though he picked up a big win on Saturday. We'll be talking about that, but that's why you see guys like him or Sergio Pettis uh, struggling. Ronda Rousey. Ronda, Even Ronda. Rousey she, should, she, didn't have, she, should, she shouldn't have fought Nunes in their first fight back. Who who would do that? And now she's gone. You, know, you never know. She could have won two or three, and next thing you know, she's right back in the uh, title picture, and they're still getting paydays, and she's not in pro wrestling. But uh, I I think that this is a testament to not only to sports psychiatry and mental health when it comes to such a uh, vicious sport such as MMA. It also comes to it also speaks to the importance of tune-up fights and protecting some of these fighters and kind of getting them back um, into a position where they can be winners. Because right now, Stipe, I mean, excuse me, not Stipe, right now, Francis Ngannou is damaged goods. And, and even though he's promising to come out like a destroyer again, that may very well not happen. But but what get, but here's the other side of it that's problematic. Think about it this way. He's only got two losses, right, to two top contenders. But this loss was so bad that you can't even put him in a rematch with Stipe because he, he, he didn't put up a fight. You can't really build him back right away because of the nature of this fight. He's going to have to put two or three really good performances together before he's even really considered because, once again, what happens if he's in with a guy who can knock him out again? What happens if he's in a fight where a guy can't just be bullied and dictated to? I'm not saying he can't overcome it. And the fact that he openly admitted it, I give him a lot of credit. That takes a certain kind of courage that most adults don't have because as a fighter, you're never scared. You're never hesitant. You know, I'm just, I'm a warrior. I would do this for free, all that other nonsense they say. So I expect the fact that he brought it up. But the fact of the matter is, how do, how do you know that he's passed it? Because fighting is not a game you want to be extra hesitant in or fearful in. Because the only reason Derek Lewis didn't bring something to him is because Derek Lewis's back was out. If Derek Lewis's back wasn't out and he realized that nothing was coming back from Nganu, he could have really hurt him. Mm-hmm. He could have really hurt him. Imagine what DC would have done to that Nganu. Imagine what Stipe would have done to that version of Nganu. You know, that, that Kurt, Curtis Blades might have killed that guy on Saturday night. But 
so how do you how do you how do you know that he's addressed the problem except to put him in another fight? And depending on who he's facing, if he hasn't addressed it, we could be talking about a very serious injury or a guy who's not will, who's not ready to be back in there. How do you gauge that? How do you determine it? I mean, again, I'm not disagreeing with you in any way, shape, or form. Um, it's a situation that we continue to see happen here, and it's just unfortunate that um, that we have to see another fighter, I don't want to say become damaged goods, but become very close to it. Um, and he may not I mean, be he's the a same. He's a heavyweight, so there's always going to be space for him to, to turn around the narrative and get back going. It's just it's going to be very hard to do with such a highly profiled, publicized fight and to just do nothing. It'd be even better if he just got taken down and got choked out or knocked out with the first shot. You could at least understand that. But him just not fighting and then saying he's scared in the cage, it's, it just, it's just going to be hard to get the fans really back on it. In one instance, it'll get him back on his side because he's admitting he's human, he's flawed, and he, he's got stuff to work through. On another side, it's going to be hard to because people are going to it's going to be hard to, for people to put their hard-earned money down for a guy who they know isn't going to give their best or is fearful to give his best. I mean, it, I'm sorry. You know, look, Kevin Love admitted he had confidence problems. Did, and while right. people gave him a lot of support and stuff, when he wasn't performing in the game, what did people say? Kevin Soft, he don't have it. He he just shouldn't be in there right now. We need to put somebody else in. And even though people have sympathy for it, when it comes down to doing your job, when people are paying for your service and you can't do it, all that sympathy goes out the window. The same person who you're concerned about their mental health as a friend or the confidant might not be the person you, you want to hire or the person you want to date or have a relationship with because now you have to deal with the consequences of their actions. As a friend, it's kind of over there and you assist. As, if they're your employee or they're your girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever, that's your problem. So all of a sudden it becomes a whole lot less appealing. And that's um, – actually, there's another fighter from the card on Saturday who may also – I don't want to say become damaged goods. He's a little bit different, but we saw him in a situation in a no – in a situation where it really wasn't a viable opportunity to win. And what I'm talking about is uh, Paul Felder. When he lost badly, not badly, but badly to uh, Mike Perry. And now, I mean, what he's lost two fights in a row. Is, no, he his win streak is snapped. Let me see, because I think he was on a pretty good winning streak. His win streak is snapped in a weight division that he almost doesn't plan to return to. Like, what was the point of that fight? And if it was you... Would you have let him take that fight or, I mean, knowing that he's had multiple fights canceled because of various reasons, all of them kind of linked this year, all of them linked to Al Iaquinta, and now he's had his, let me see what he was doing before this, before this fight, he was on a three-fight winning streak, and now that's snapped. You there? Yeah. Um, my concerns for the fight, I, I said this many times. Um, I talked to our good friend, Mr. Murphy, who came on our show a couple months ago. I said this on Twitter. I said this before the fight. I get why they're needing the fight. You want to keep yourself in the public consciousness. You want to fight to stay sharp. You want to make money. You want to have a chance to win over a name fighter. I get all that. But on the other side of this, there are inherent risks when you're facing moving up a weight class facing a guy who's known as a power puncher and a guy who should have a strength and to a degree an athletic advantage over you. 
Now, I got the best of both worlds. I got the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. Felder looked good. He showed his class. He showed his heart. He showed superior skills. And he showed an ability to take the power of Mike Perry. On the bad sense of this, he took a lot of clean power shots. And I don't care if you have a good chin or not. You only have so many shots you can take in a career before that dents your chin or erodes it. Secondly, he got busted wide open. And thirdly, he broke his arm. So he's going to be out of commission for a while. He's not even going to be able to fight for, what, three, six months? I don't know how long. I don't know how long it takes for to recover. But he's going to be out of the mix for the next couple months because he can't compete because of his injuries. So now you've lost. So whether he won or lost, he's lost out on the opportunity to take fights moving forward because the cut's going to take time to heal. The arm will take time to heal. He took a loss. And even though he held up to the shots pretty well, he took a lot of flush, clean power shots from one of the bigger punchers in the division, in the welterweight division. And that has, that's a, there's, a, there's a price you have to pay for that. Mike Perry's taken a lot of big, clean, flush shots from big hitters. And you've seen that he's seem, seemingly lost a step physically to a degree. And that's a result of being in constant wars. So he didn't get the win. He got cut. So that's, that, that's time out of the cage. He broke his arm. That's more time out of the cage. And which means his ranking or any ranking or momentum he had at 155 disappears. And he didn't even make any headway in welterweight because he lost the fight. So what did you really get from this except a short-term payday? He didn't even get fight of the fight of the night. He didn't even make an extra 50K. I think he did. I think they did. did get, he? I, I think they did get a post. I don't think so. I think they had three performances. Costa got one. DC got one. And... Somebody submitted somebody. I forgot who, but uh, I do not. I Pettis, think Pettis got right. one. Pettis got the only right. So he, so he didn't get it. He didn't get a win at welterweight. He's his streak. His win streak is done. He, so he's not going to be able to move up in the in the lightweight division because he's not going to be available. And now he's injured and he's out even further. So he can't train and he can't fight. So what did he get from this except showing that he's a warrior, which is great. But we already knew he's a warrior. He's tough. I already knew he was tough. He's skilled. I already knew he's skilled. Nothing positive came from this fight except him reinforcing what I already knew. So what did they get from this? They didn't even get the 50000 They didn't even get a bit. I don't understand what they got from this. I don't understand how this helped except him having a fight. That's it. Yeah, definitely there. I, I can agree with you on that. I don't see how this kind of helped him there. I wonder if he got you know a little extra bonus on, on, on the backside. I would hope he did because he definitely did them. He did them a favor by stepping in when Perry, um, Perry lost – Madero's but at the same time, they can kind of leverage that. Well, we did you a favor when we pulled uh, James Vick from the fight, and you didn't have one at all. So that's a so the weird thing. Point. The weird thing is, so many guys have called Paul Felder out. One guy won a fight, and he was interviewing him in the cage, and he called him out. That so was all James these Vick. Keep, yeah, all these people keep calling him out, and for some reason, the only fight they could get to him is a welterweight fight. I mean, they could even put him in with Justin Gaethje. For all I'm concerned, I, I just don't understand what this guy did to get on everybody's bad sides where every opportunity that comes up goes to someone else. Every single one. Title fight, someone else. Big fight with Gaethje, someone else. And I get stuck with Mike Perry on the bottom of the main card? How do you figure? Like, what did I do to you guys? And that's what makes it... And like, he's a company man. He's a company man's company man. And it's, it's just a... Um, it's just a... It's, it's an interesting conversation because he's a company man that keeps getting the short end of the stick for lack of a better and term and he's a high profile one he's he covers fights he's an analyst huh? so he's known out there he's known for exciting fights he's you know he's a 
from what I understand, he's a good looking dude. He's got a sort of personality. He has exciting fight style and skills. How do you put a guy like him in that kind of position? It just, it confounds me to no end. I, I just do not understand why they would do that to a guy who's caused no problems, done everything they asked, fought whoever they wanted, and is one of their faces for the sport and their organization. Why do you do him like this? Yeah, that's definitely a tough situation to kind of look at there. So let's look at. And what, one more thing, one more thing before we go on this, like me and Raphael keep telling you, stop doing millionaires and billionaires favors. Uh-huh. I'm sorry, I'm going to keep saying it. You did them a favor. They're going to tell you they did you a favor. They didn't do you a favor. They cost you money. They cost you a win streak. They cost you a title shot. Stop doing these billionaires and millionaires favors until they start bringing something that you, that's going to move you forward regardless. Tell him no. And I don't know why his management didn't tell If I was his management, I would say, we ain't doing it. Well, I'm firing you. Whatever. Fire me. I don't care. I don't think you should go ahead with it. Do what you want. No, I'm not disagreeing with you there at all. So let's move on down the card because the next fight we got to talk about is Anthony Pettis and Michael Kies. I want to touch upon this and then the Paulo Costa fight as well. And, and maybe Dan Hooker. You know, we got a lot to talk about from UFC 226. Uh, Anthony Pettis, submission, round two. Um, and the thing is, he's tapped a guy who many would have thought was better than him on the ground. I would probably say if it was like a, a pure grappling match, I, I would probably take Michael uh, Chiesa over Anthony Pettis. But Pettis has a very dangerous guard. And he proved it once again with a triangle armbar to get the win on uh, Saturday. So what were your thoughts about his performance here? Uh, the fight went kind of the way I thought it. I, I said that Chiesa is a good grappler, not a great one. He's a good wrestler, not a great one. He's not the greatest as far as maintaining control or always finishing a, a certain kind of athlete. And that, that was basically the case. He took Pettis down early. He couldn't control him and keep him down. He couldn't finish him. They got back to the feet. Pettis started lighting him up. End of the round, he's on his heels. He's getting outstruck. Second round goes into it. Pettis is pressuring him. And if Pettis is backing you up, I said this before, I've said this many times, if Pettis is backing you up, you have problems. So he's backing him up. He's landing clean shots. Instead of attempting to wrestle and making Pettis have to defend his wrestling and really work, continue to make him work and wear him down, takes him to spring off his step, force him into the cage, he lands a good shot on Kiesa. What does Kiesa do? I'm going to counter. I'm going to strike with him. I'm going to show I can hang with him. Didn't work. Got hurt again. Ended up getting to the ground and then got finished. Had, had he not gotten hurt on the feet, I don't know that Pettis finishes him as, as quickly because Pettis is a transition kind of guy. He's a big play offense guy. You take him down, he. He controls you. He jumps up for a submission. He gets it. All his submissions are generally fairly quickly set and then and then been completed. Same thing on the feet. His shots are kind of individual shots that put do huge damage or put you away. It's not a combination. It's not a structured progression through moves and setups and all that stuff. It's kind of like, bam, he's got you. Submit it. Bam, he's got you. Fly knee. Flying kick. Kick off the cage. Superman punch. It's all big play offense. There's no slow buildup and execution of it like his brother has. So had he not hurt him on the feet, maybe he doesn't get to that opportunity. But I, I wasn't really surprised by it because I don't know that Kiesa is a good enough striker. I know he's not a good enough wrestler. And even though he's a good grappler, I've seen him control on the ground. I've seen him beaten up on the ground. I've seen him finish on the ground. So it was a good win. And it was impressive that Anthony showed something that he hasn't shown in a long time, with it, which is some urgency and some dynamic athleticism. But Kiesa wasn't really isn't one of the top, in my opinion, top thirteen fighters in lightweight. So it's a good win for a guy who who's been inconsistent. But it doesn't tell me that Anthony Pettis is back. It tells me that Anthony Pettis is still good enough to beat second tier, maybe second high third tier lightweights. And I already knew that coming in. 
So where? So let's see where he's currently ranked when it comes to. Let me ask you a question. How do you feel about him saying, well, you know, I don't really need to do the wrestling. I'm just going to go back to the striking and the jiu-jitsu. I mean, wait, let him, let him mess around and lose the Clay Guida again, and he'll um, gladly change that uh, change that tune. Like, let's see, he is, he, now he's ranked number eight, and he's moved up um, in rankings. I don't think, like, if you look at, what's interesting is you, if you look at the top, um, Top ten in lightweight, it's all strikers except for it's Khabib the top. Then you have Ferguson, McGregor, Eddie Alvarez, who could be considered a wrestler when he needs Kevin to be. Lee. Um, Poirier, Poirier is kind of like I would consider him more a striker. Kevin Lee, he's obviously a wrestler, and then no other wrestlers in the, in, in the top ten. Yeah, and and you know what, I I agree with what he's saying because. You have to, as a coach, you know you have to be comfortable in the style you're using. You have to, know, you have to know your limitations, your strengths, and play towards them. But the problem is, Anthony isn't a very complex striker. He still doesn't put combinations together. He throws these like, he throws like one or two shots together, but he can't. He doesn't put combinations together. He doesn't have an active jab. He goes huge amounts of time without really filling the space with any volume or activity. So it's like, even though he has this athletic advantage and this power advantage. He doesn't set it up very well. He doesn't put a lot of pressure on you. He doesn't put a lot of volume on you. And if you back him up, he doesn't. He hasn't really shown any ability to get off the get off the center line or to pivot away from the cage. So in it, even if he goes back to doing what he wants, how does that work against guys who are athletically capable of matching what he wants to do? I mean, he fights Edson Barboza again. I see no reason why Edson doesn't beat him again. If he fights Conor McGregor, I don't know how Conor McGregor doesn't beat him. He's good at striking. He's effective. He's devastating. But there's some clear holes in his striking as far as his defense, his positioning, and his ability to put shots together. Even in that fight against Kaseya, uh, excuse me, Kaseya, I can't I keep saying his name wrong. Um, he didn't really Sarah's? put combination. Yeah. yeah uh, excuse me, no, no uh, uh, Anthony, the one he fought this week, Michael Kaseya. Uh, Is it Kaseya? Kaseya, sorry. He didn't really put he didn't really put combinations together. I mean, he threw series of shots, but he didn't put combinations together. Would those series of shots have worked against Edson Barboza? I don't know. They didn't work for work the first time, and he could try that against Eddie Alvarez. But Eddie Alvarez would take him down off of that kind of stuff because Eddie Alvarez will chase the takedown, and he's strong enough and physical enough to get it. He tried against Dustin Poirier. Dustin Poirier had had him working off his back foot the entire fight. He makes it seem like all these guys have been trying to wrestle him, and he, he's wasted time with the wrestling. But the bigger problem is guys have been outworking him and have been pressuring him. That's the difference. His footwork hasn't held up underneath pressure. His defense hasn't held up underneath volume. He's talking about the wrestling like, like that's the only factor. If those guys couldn't effectively pressure him and get in his face and get in range, they would never take him down. If guys couldn't back him up in straight lines with combinations and strikes, they would never take him down. They take him down up against the cage. They don't take him down in open space where he has space to create. They take him down up against the cage because he keeps backing up in straight lines. So he hasn't addressed the footwork issue. He hasn't addressed the combination issue. So while he can still have dynamic wins against guys who are good matchups with him, against the guys he lost to before, I don't, I don't see how he beats them. He doesn't throw enough to keep you off him. And against the bigger, more established guys, he doesn't hit hard enough to keep you off him. He just fought Dustin Poirier like a year ago. What, what happened with that? He got, he got pushed back, he got walked down, and he got finished. 
So, so that, what he's saying doesn't address any of those problems, and that's my concern. He's still not addressing the problems. Maybe he doesn't have to go all out wrestling, but why not address some of these holes in your standup that'll help you with your stand with your wrestling defense? You get better footwork, wrestling defense gets real easy. You get a body jab, wrestling defense gets a little bit easier. You have feints, wrestling defense gets a lot easier. But he doesn't have any of that stuff. So what do you do with him next? Do you because looking at the let's say do you do you give him the winner of Justin Justin Gaethje and Al uh, James Vick? Do you give him Ally Quinta on a return? Um, Dan Hooker, that would be interesting. Do you give him that? Do you give him that fight? Hook, Hooker's coming off. You know of, what? Off Hooker, off Hooker might be a good fight for him because because Pettis is still super durable. Pettis can take a shot mentally. He's very tough. Hooker will want a big name. Pettis is coming off a di- a, a fairly fairly impressive win. A hooker fight might work. I think he's a guy who, who still we don't know how good he is because we haven't seen him against a guy who can take what he has to offer and push back against him. Pettis, if nothing else, will fire back. He'll take your best shots and he'll fire back. And if you get lazy or sloppy for a second and give him an opening, he can't put you away on the feet or on the ground. Now, if you can extend those exchanges, that's when he gets vulnerable. But in those, those spots, in those one or two shots, he can make anybody pay. He almost finished Poirier with a triangle, and there's numerous guys he's landed those body kicks on, and they had to reset with what they were doing and fighting him. So I think Hooker would be the perfect matchup for him. It wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a highly ranked opponent, but it would give him a chance to put on an impressive win, and an impressive, exciting win gets him closer to a title fight than beating a higher ranked guy who's gonna who's gonna muddy up the fight and make it ugly. So. Let's kind of use that to segue into how Dan Hooker performed on Saturday as well, because he smoked Gilbert Burns and picked up a big win there. What are your thoughts about Hooker and where his ceiling is within this lightweight division? Hooker is a good example of what happens when you fight at a weight class that's better for you, because he wasn't this kind of finisher at his other weight class. He wasn't this kind of finisher. He didn't take shots as well. He wasn't as fluid or as explosive. Uh, he didn't show the strength or the or the power, and it seems like he's since he's moved up weight class. Even though he hasn't fought elite guys, he seemed to be just a different fighter. So it seems the weight class has done him a great service as far as his durability, his physical strength, and his his, his punching or striking power. He just looks like a different guy. I don't know that he's a different guy because he hasn't faced people who are really capable of testing him in the truest end or in the toughest spot. But he seems to be a different fighter. I need to see him against a guy who's either been elite or or is closer to elite than the guys he's fought recently. Burns, as good as he is and as good an athlete as he is, his defense isn't great, his offense isn't particularly sharp, and he has not shown himself to be particularly durable when he's when guys put, put power shots together on him. I don't think he's particularly durable. So it's a fight that, he could have, that Burns was capable of performing well in because he's a good enough athlete and he's got a decent skill set, but it's not the kind of fight that I expected Burns to win. I didn't expect him to get smoked like this, but I didn't. I didn't really expect Burns to win over Hooker. Hooker seems to be a different guy at this spot. So, how far do you think he's? Do you think he's going to be able to go? Like right now, he like I said, he's ranked for the first time after this past weekend's fight. Do you expect to see him become a true contender, or is this just, or is he going to be someone who kind of struggles at at, at the top? Well, I, I think he has the potential to be a contender. I mean, like I said, he he's got the athleticism and he's got enough aggression. And, and it just the way he his body moves and reacts to shots and reacts to 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 offensive moves. It, he just seems a lot more locked in. He seems a lot more fluid. I, I think the question is, does he have the experience? Because he still hasn't faced a guy who can put him in spots when he, put him in spots where he doesn't want to be, 
or force the fight in the ranges that he doesn't want the fight to be. He's been able to control pace. He's been able to kind of bully guys and beat them up and kind of walk them down, or if not, just run right over them. What's going to happen when he faces a guy who he can't run over? He cracks him with a shot, that guy cracks him back. He, that guy takes him down, and that guy starts working him over. He hasn't been in those spots. So far, the fights he's been in have been exciting, but they haven't really been back and forth in, in the truest sense of back and forth. He's essentially been more or less in control and had the power and ability to finish at any given at any given time. I need to see what's going to happen when he hits a guy with his best shot and the guy fires right back on him. Everybody keeps saying, you know, I train for this, I'm ready for this. I got to see it. And at 55, he hasn't faced anybody who's got the experience and the durability, much less the count, the class as far as a fighter who can test who can test him in that manner. So while I, I I'm favorable on his skill set and on the physical tools, I got to see how he reacts when he's put into a tough spot and he just can't get out of it. When he's got to really take steps instead of jumping from one to five, he's got to go one, two, three, four, five and work his way out because if he takes any shortcuts, he'll be countered or he'll be finished with a submission. I need to see him in that kind of circumstance. And I, none of the guys has tested him. He's clearly better than the rest. We need to see how much better he is. Yeah, I can, I can agree with you on that there. Let's look at Paulo Costa, who had a huge win over um, Uriah Hall, stopping him in, what, the third round or second or third round of, of their fight there, getting a pretty pretty solid win, probably his biggest win to date there. Um, a lot of people are really impressed with Paulo Costa talking about him as the next Brazilian star that the sport kind of needs. What are your thoughts about this win here, and what would you do with this guy um, next? Like, where where would you pair him up next? Uh, Israel Adesanya, another dude who had a big win um, on third Friday, basically said, "Hey, I want to fight you next." And Paulo's kind of like scoffed at that idea. What would you do next? I, I I don't think I don't think you push it. I don't think you push that fight too fast. I know the fact is both guys are young, and there's no need to. You have. You have a division that doesn't have a whole lot of excitement. They have a lot of old men towards the top of the division. You need some young blood. Instead of putting the two young guys who haven't established themselves as it's top 10 type fighters against each other, why not have them fight, uh, fight their way up a little bit more and kind of build some interest, see who breaks through first, see who suffers the setback first, and then go from there. I don't think there's any rush to make that fight happen. It's not as big as it could be, and if whoever wins – you knock one potential future star of the division out of the box before you gave him a chance to come into his stardom and really get, really get a fan base behind him and really kind of develop the seasoning necessary to compete at the elite level. Um, I like I like Costa. He's very physically durable. I actually was working with a fighter who fought him. He said that guy was like punching steel. He, he's got... He, and he, he's such a dynamic striker. The best thing I like about him is the body punching. Usually you have so many guys with power shots who headhunt and they waste a bunch of energy missing and whipping and hitting arms and hitting shoulders and not getting the maximum bang for their buck out of their shot. Costa attacks the body. He punishes the body. And God, the thing about fighting... punishing his body. You're yeah. definitely right about that. The, fight, the body's always there. People waste, they waste so much energy. Oh, I threw 100, 100 punches that round. You only landed 30, so you missed 70 shots to the head when the body is right there. All day long. Now, there's a risk with going to the body because you can be countered. But the fact of the matter is most MMA guys don't have the timing and the skill to counter you with the knee. They definitely don't have the timing to counter you with hands. So if you're an explosive guy who's aggressive, when, they, when those guys shell up, which is what most MMA guys do, or they back up in a straight line, you drop levels and you just go to the body and you land full force to it. If you're not knocking them out, 
you're cutting into their gas tank, you're cutting into their breathing. They can't continue with the, under a heavy assault of body shot because most guys don't train for them. In mixed martial arts, they don't train for them. You, you, if you have real power and you can put five or six body shots together every couple minutes, you're going to stop most guys. They're not conditioned to deal with. They're conditioned to take a huge leg kick, body kick, a couple body kicks, but it's different when you're getting that, that machine gun action to the body, which is what he does. And that's what really separates him. That body punching makes it hard for you to come in for any sort of clinch attempt or for you to commit to any big shots because you know he's going to drop levels and punish you to the body. So guys start wanting to not engage with him and, and control a distance and kind of pick at him from a distance because they don't want him getting into boxing range because he's going to tax you to the body. So that essentially kind of handcuffs people's aggression and the tools they can use. Because if you want to get that clinch, you know, you know, you know, you're taking a risk. He's going to roast those ribs. If you try to get in boxing level or stick that jab, he'll drop levels. He'll he'll a slip, rip to the body, and guys know they can't take his power to the head, much less to the body. He's super athletic. He's super dynamic. I think defensively, he has some holes because he's he's just so used to bullying guys and overwhelming guys. Once again, you need to see what happens when he hits a guy and that guy doesn't go away. Because every time it hits guys, guys have a look on their face like they don't want to get hit like that again. And they start getting on their bike. They start trying to turn him. I don't know how he reacts to a guy who takes that power and comes right back at him. Or a guy who he can't get to, a guy who's out positioning him and out slicking him. So far, he's faced guys who are somewhat defensively limited so he can put his hands together. He can put his shots together. He can trap him on the cage. A guy like Adesanya can manipulate the range and distance and kind of get away, pivot, slip, turn him, angle away, and pot shot him. But guys like um, Uriah Hall, Uriah Hall is used to pe- his athleticism and his power ma- making guys hesitate. He was catching Costa with some big spinning kicks, le- body kicks, leg kicks, punches, and he couldn't keep him off him. That relentless pressure is what broke him down. But the same could be said about Costa because Costa hasn't faced a guy who hasn't had to respect his power. So what happens when he hits a guy and that guy swings right back? We don't know yet. And we might not know for a while, but his lack of defensive awareness and his dependency on his physicality and his volume is concerning because the easiest time to hit you is when you're throwing. And if you face a guy who can handle that heat, you're going to get hit a whole lot more than you're used to. And he hasn't had a guy go to his body yet either. So he's been able to pitch and dictate terms of engagement. I don't know what's going to happen when guys start pitching back and dictar- dictating the terms of engage- engagement versus him. So with that in mind, man, who would you put him up against next? Who's who's a middleweight who doesn't have a fight? I mean, I don't put him against Weidman. He, I mean, if Weidman doesn't get down, he might kill him. Um, man, I don't, I don't really know who's free at, who's free at middleweight right now. I, I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, David Branch isn't going to want to fight him. I know that much. David Branch could have could have asked for that fight. I know he's not asking for him. Uh, I'd have to think about it because I don't really know what middleweights are around that would give him the appropriate test. He's he's blown through so many guys so easily. It's hard to really gauge the the kind of guys who could test him. I know could test him. Yo Romero, Robert Whitaker, even Ke- Kevin Gastelum because he's got a chin. He's got a, he's probably got a little bit of a quickness advantage. Are I think a step too far from right now. And, what about, really... um, let's see, they got him sitting at number eight right now in the division. What about someone like a Thiago Santos, you know, um, Antonio and Carlos Jr., Brad Tavares? Do you give him that fight? Do you give him? No, you can't, you, you can't, you can't give him Tavares. Tavares just went through the meat grinder. What uh, about Derek I Brunson? Guess... I just don't think I, mean, I, I think he smoked I mean, Derek Brunson. Yeah, I mean, it's like, 
Derek Brunson would be a good would be a good match, but Derek Brunson isn't going to attack him on a range or an area that he he's not prepared to deal with. Derek Brunson doesn't use his wrestling, so there's no risk there. And Derek Brunson charges head first with power punches. I mean, what's that going to teach us about Costa that we don't even know that we don't know right now? Maybe Carl. People in the face pretty well because that's exactly what's going to happen. Maybe Leatherface because he he at least has a grappling option and he might test him in there, but. We need we need guys who are going to show us more of him, and all the guys who who I know are available right now don't have the physicality, the durability, or the skill set to really tell us more about what he has to offer. I'm not going to disagree with you that there. I, I was very impressed by what I saw from him um, on Saturday. Very very impressed. He looks he looks like the Brazilian Superman, and he he's willing to get in there and fight like one too. What do they call him the the new Vitor Belfort is what I heard. Uh, let's hope that that doesn't go the same way Vitor Belfort went. But um, there's I'm, there's some similarities. He's he's dictating the guys. He's kind of having his way. But you know when when Belfort had 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 to fight back, we saw a different side of him. And right now, Costa hasn't really been hurt. He hasn't really been hurt. Where you you know you get that fear like oh my god, like I could really get hurt in here. So until we see that where he starts getting tired and he starts getting extended. Then we'll kind of find something else new, but it's kind of f- finding fights where that's going to happen. And I, I just don't want to see him in a Adesanya fight right away because it's like you got two guys who got a lot of hype behind them who, who are outperforming their rankings. Why do you want to knock one of them off so early in, in the in the in their progression? Because somebody's got to lose. And what was interesting though is that Uriah Hall did have some good moments. In the first round, he was staying behind his jab and circling off the cage. He looked like he was doing pretty well with that. And then he just decided he just pulled a Uriah Hall and was like, you know what? I'm doing pretty well with this. I'm going to throw this completely out the window and not do it anymore. Yeah, Uriah Hall is a guy who's got all the physical tools. He's explosive. He hits hard. He's actually fairly durable. He's a he's a comp, he's a good striker. Not a great one because defensively, his defense isn't there consistently. And essentially, that's what happened. When Costa started getting to the body, I, I really don't think he just gave up. I think he just started taking those body shots, and he started losing his energy, and he didn't have the energy to stay on his toes and keep turning and keep pivoting. To do that for rounds and rounds is exhausting, especially when you're constantly under duress. Unless you're like a Floyd Mayweather type who's got that real crisp footwork, and you know how to manage your energy, and you know how to tie people up, and you know how to space and control the pacing of a fight, it's really hard because at some point when that guy keeps pressuring you, your footwork starts to break down, and it, 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 it's just you backing up or going totally defensive. And against a guy like Costa, once you start going totally defensive, and instead of looking, instead of just trying to place the best shot, he's just going to unload on you. And he's going to have you under constant duress of constantly being touched, whether it's on your forearms, your shoulders, your back, your ribs, wherever. He's going to keep putting those power shots together. And I think that mental pressure as well as the physical power is what overwhelmed Uriah Hall. As I said... If you respect his power and speed and he can get some space, he's masterful as a striker, but he couldn't he c- couldn't get Costa's respect. He's landed the biggest he dropped him, Costa got right back up and was on him. He kicked him with a spinning back kick. He didn't even take a step backward. He walked right through it and stayed on him. And if you're not a top end defensive guy as far as your footwork, you don't know how to conserve your energy. You don't know how to constantly stay sharp under duress. You start falling apart, your feet start getting a little slower. You start moving in straight lines, if not outright covering up and running, and that's when that guy overwhelms you. He just put too much pressure on him, and Hall couldn't get enough respect to have the space that he needed to operate. So once he started tiring, it was just a matter of volume against athleticism, 
when his athleticism started fading, failing him, the volume took over. I saw, I saw, I'm not sure if it was you that actually described him like this, but um, someone described uh, Uriah Hall as a video game character with maximum stats across the board, but the person playing the game doesn't know how to play. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I didn't say that, but that's pretty much it. He's got the physical tools to be able to do anything he wants in there, but mentally he kind of loses focus as he did with Gastelum, and technically... His whole, his whole style is based upon his physicality and the creativity of his strikes. When he gets in a tough spot, instead of circling out patiently or tying up, turning you against the cage and escaping, you know what he does? He does a big spinning kick, spinning back fist, spinning kick, front kick, something dynamic to create space so he can escape. The only difference is if you don't end the fight or do a lot of damage to get that person's respect, you just wasted a bunch of energy and you didn't get yourself any more time to breathe or any, any more space to maneuver. His footwork and his punching under duress isn't good. Like the jab, the right hand, it's okay. But get him into an exchange where he has to go two, three, four punches into the exchange. After that second punch, his punches start getting a little, they, they're still coming fast, but they're a little wider. They don't, they're not as snappy. And his defense starts falling apart. His head starts sitting still. But in those first two, he can move his head, keep his, keep his poise, roll, slip, and all that stuff. But the further you get along past those initial layers, his, his whole, his whole, um, striking game falls apart. It's kind of like if you were grappling a guy who had a good initial takedown defense and you realize, okay, he took, the, he, he stuffed the first one. Let me try and chain it. Let me put another takedown right behind it. Let me take another takedown right behind it. Bam. I got him. So now, you know, all you have to do is put a combination on him. He'll, he'll stop the first one, but that second or third one's going to get him every time. That's your eye hall. He can, he can get away from initial shallow attacks, but if you have any sort of depth or nuance to see your striking, you're going to catch him. You're going to pressure him. You're going to break him down. You're going to start landing combinations. His shots are going to start getting wild. He's going to start getting desperate. He's going to wear himself out, and then you're going to take over. It happens in every fight he loses. He's either conserving energy so he can come on late or he wastes energy trying to create space and, and do huge amounts of damage and then gets worn down later. If you watch enough of his fights, it's, it's a consistent trend. If he can't control you or blow you out with his athleticism and his creativity striking – he tends to get walked down and beat up. That's been bas basically the, the book on him from day one. Good, good, good there. So let's, um, I want to move on from this card because we've been talking about it pretty extensively. There's so much to kind of look, look at. And I want to touch on this weekend's card rather quickly because we have UFC Boise. And it's a pretty interesting card um, with uh, Junior Dos Santos making his return against Blagi Ivanov. Uh, in the main event, and this is an important heavyweight fight, especially at this point in time where we're not quite sure what's going to go down. So what do you see here in this main event here? Junior Dos Santos is coming back after his USADA uh, suspension. He's been out for a little more than a year. Uh, his last fight was a loss to Stipe um, in their rematch because, you know, they're one and one against each other now. Uh, what are your thoughts about this fight here? Um, it all comes down to DeSantos. DeSantos is still one of the more athletic strikers. He's still one of the bigger hitters. And in his time, I think, I think he's still with ATT. He's actually worked on his overall boxing and his striking. It's a little bit more grounded. It's a little bit more balanced and complete. The problem is we don't know how much durability he has left. Even as you try to be more defensive, you try to interact with you're slightly breaking up. You're slightly breaking up. He, he's trying to be more defensive and more technical, but 
But the fact of the matter is, he's taken so many beatings, and I don't know how much punishment he can take or how long he can fight at a pace. And those were the two biggest advantages he had as a fighter. His athleticism, his durability, excuse me, three, his athleticism, his durability, and his ability to maintain a high pace. I don't know that he can do those things. The last fight against Stipe, essentially the first two shots Stipe hit him, was it. And I know Stipe's a hard hitter, but as Cormier and other guys have shown, Stipe's not a one-punch kind of guy. And I, I just don't know what Junior has left. That's my biggest concern. That's the thing I want to see in this fight. What does he have left? I can be a little bit, my man. Breaking up just a little bit. Uh, essentially, I just want to know what Junior has left physically. If physically his durability holds up and he can maintain a pace, he can still be a problem in this division. But we don't know how he handles shots anymore. We don't know how he recovers from damage anymore. Last time he fought, he didn't recover very well. And he didn't take it very well. And his opponent isn't the greatest technical fighter, but he's still a big, strong, durable heavyweight. And I'm thinking that guy's going to come right out and see what the top decides to offer. Because Sanders has been so shaky in the last few fights. You broke up a little bit there, but um, we heard most of what you said there because it's it's what is going on with JDS. He's been away from the cage for a little while. You have to wonder if his if his chin is better because if you look at the way he fought, the way the fight with Stipe went down, both of them actually, the first one was a back and forth battle. They were both taking shots, rocking each other. The second time they fought, Stipe walked him down and got him the hell out of the cage, basically smoked him. So it'll be interesting to see because I'm, I'm to be honest, I'm not too familiar with Ivanov. Um, he's 16 and one. He lost to Alexander Volku, uh, Volkov back at Bellator 120, but since then, he's been on a pretty strong run in the UFC. He, I mean, maybe Sean Jordan is probably the biggest name that he's defeated, and that's not really saying a whole lot. But what are your thoughts about him? Because this is this is actually, no, let me take that back. This is his UFC debut. Um, he's performed for World Series of Fighting, PFL, and Bellator in recent years. So, uh, I'm again, I'm not too familiar with him. What are, what are some of your thoughts about this guy stepping into the octagon for the first time at 31 years of age. Like I said, he's got some experience. I don't I don't think he's one of the better athletes at heavyweight. He, he seems durable. He seems to have a, a fairly balanced skill set. But really, my my impression of him is going to be determined by how this fight goes. Because winner, if he beats if he beats DeSantos, depending on how he beats him, either way, if he beats DeSantos, it's going to be hard to gauge this guy because we know that DeSantos is damaged goods. If DeSantos beats him, all that tells me is this guy needs more more work on his all-around game because DeSantos is as vulnerable as he's going to be in, a, in, in the length of his career. So it's up to me. What I'm questioning is, does, does his camp and the, does this guy's mentality allow him to attack DeSantos in a way that's going to test him right away? Or does he let DeSantos find a rhythm and work his way into a fight? Because if you give DeSantos space, let him build confidence, he can put shots together. He can start controlling you with this jab. He can he can separate you with volume. But we know right now that when he's been pressured, he goes back in straight lines. We know when he gets stuck on the cage, he becomes very hittable. And we know that he hasn't he doesn't take damage as well, and he doesn't recover from damage as well. So the question with this guy is, does he have the IQ? Does he have a good enough camp to put him in the positions necessary to beat DeSantos? I don't know that I'm going to be able to tell anything about him physically, but how he approaches this fight is going to, going to tell me a lot about him mentally and strategically. And at heavyweight, where everybody can knock you out and everybody's big and strong, your ability to have a game plan, an efficient game plan, and adjust the game plan as the fight goes on is what's going to separate you. Because everybody up here is a fairly decent athlete who can hit and has fairly balanced skills. 
it's like it's do you have the mentality do you have the ability the poise and the pressure against a seasoned former champion to execute i mean like i said DeSantis is vulnerable is this guy good enough and smart enough to take advantage of, of his vulnerabilities at this stage yeah it's definitely um going to be a pretty intriguing fight uh, on saturday i am probably i'm interested in a couple of different things from this fight here because or this event uh rick glenn is fighting he's a did he was he a former uh, wsof champion yes that's what i thought okay so you got rick glenn fighting uh sage norka and zach ota are are fighting as well um tab mendez is returning i'm interested in this randy brown nico price fight um man marion renault kat zingano that's a big fight there dale elkins is always interesting to me Looking at this whole card here, this card is better than a lot of people are kind of giving it credit for. Jessica Aguilar is fighting. This Garmouche is fighting. Looking down this um, slate here, what are some of the things that, that you're looking forward to the most on Saturday? Well, the, uh, of course, I, I talk a little bit about the women's. Mary Renault's on like a two or three fight win streak. She's one no, She's won three out of her last four. She had a, a draw with Betch Cohea. I'm watching, look, watching this fight because she's – probably one of the closer fighters to a title title shot right now i mean there's not a lot of girls in the in the division so any win you have especially when you put them together moves you up very quickly i'm kind of shocked that she's taking this fight against zingano because zingano hasn't won a fight in like three years and as a girl who's moving closer to a title shot why do you risk it against a person who hasn't won in three years and if she beats you sends you all the way to the back of the line it's similar to the concern i had when jessica rose clark was fighting jessica i what do you have to get out of this fight? You win, it's not really a big win. This person hasn't looks great. And if you lose, you just lost to a person who hasn't really looked great and hasn't won a lot of fights in the past couple of years. So this is a big fight for the Bantamweight division because of the the uncertainty of the division and the fact that Renault is in a position where she could be a potential title contender with this with another win. For Zagano, it's a chance to turn the whole fight turn her whole career around. She beats Renault. She's right back in title talks. The division is that then where a person with a name coming off an impressive win can almost demand a title fight right now. So that that fight has a lot of uh, merit to it. Um, the Chad Mendes fight is interesting to me because I want to see what he looks like after he comes back from his time off. I think with, in his case, the time off really helped him out because he took one one knockout loss and then he got suspended. So he's been out for an extended period. I really believe that fight with Aldo had a that those fights with Aldo and McGregor had far-reaching effects in his durability and his ability to perform. And I think the time off has really helped him kind of heal from any wear and tear and kind of recover physically. The question I have mostly is, I think he's been losing a step athletically. I don't think he's the same athlete. I'm not saying it's a big drop-off, but there's a drop-off. So the question I have is, has he developed a better set of all-round skills, not to, not to just take advantage of his athletic ability, but to maximize the athletic ability he has? Because when you're a top-end athlete and you're the best in the class or number two at worst, the minute you lose a step, a lot of your defense, your offense, your counters go away because you don't have that. The gap is, isn't as wide. The same thing happened with Aldo. When Aldo started losing a step, he started getting hit by stuff he didn't normally get hit by. He wasn't quite as explosive with his shot. He wasn't getting the respect he used to get. The question is, does Mendes have the all-round tool set and has he been develop- or has he developed the all-round tool set to navigate any holes that he had in his game that he depended on his durability, his power, and his athleticism to carry him by. His camp isn't known for that kind of stuff. So, it, and especially with all the upheaval they've had coaching, it, 
I'm very curious to see what he comes out and does. Luckily, he's facing an opponent who's not a big hitter, but an opponent who's got enough skill and enough size to exploit holes in his game if, if, if he's going to present them wide open like that. Yeah, I'm definitely kind of I'm, I'm interested in seeing what he looks like uh, upon his return as well. What about Sage? Super Sage Northcutt. Um, I mean, only, what, he looks what 22 years old. I mean, yeah. he's getting a hell of a lot of experience at the highest, highest of high levels here. What are your thoughts about that? Well, he's he's going to be the better athlete in this fight. He's facing a guy who's got good, not great skills, and a guy who's not really, in my opinion, a, a fit finisher, like a real, a real. He can get a finish, but he's not the greatest finisher. And as long as Stage has an athletic advantage. I think he has a chance in, against any opponent he's facing. They're putting him in against this guy for a reason. They feel that he is his athleticism, maybe Sage's size and his power are going to be enough to mask any sort of deficiency, deficiencies he has on the feet. Defensively, he's a little suspect. Once again, you get him in extended exchanges, he tends to get hit. If you can pressure him, he tends to get hit. If you're willing to counter to the body, counter to the legs, he tends to get hit. Most guys don't do it because he's so dynamic with those initial straight right hands and, and kicks and spinning attacks that guys don't want to open themselves up f for an athlete of his caliber. So what I assume Otto is going to do is try to make it physical, try to pressure him, try to wear him out, and then turn it on late. Sage, for his part, is probably going to try and control the distance, land some power shots, maybe hold the guy against the cage, take him down, and essentially, if he can't finish, he'll, he'll go for the finish. But essentially, he's going to determine the fight off big spots of offense and basically riding the fight out, getting in control of the fight and maintaining control of the fight. The question is, what is he going to do against a guy who's more seasoned, a little bit older, and a guy who's going to be looking to make the fight physical and is, is a good enough athlete where he can p put Sage in spots that he doesn't want to be in and he can keep Sage from going to the spots he wants to be in consistently. Like Sage will be able to get to those spots, but he's going to have to work a little bit harder and there's going to be a little bit higher price to pay for when he gets to those spots. The last couple of guys he's faced haven't had the athleticism to really make him pay with their power or been a good enough athlete to put their technical advantages to use consistently. Um, I'm hoping to see a little bit more of his wrestling. I'm hoping to see a little bit more of his grappling uh, to kind of mask some of those defensive holes he has and to break the pressure when he gets pressured by guys. That's what Team Alpha Male's advantage usually is. That's their specialty. I'm hoping to see a little bit more of that in this fight because if he's forces stand-up exchanges and he gets caught in extended exchanges, I really think there's a likelihood he, he gets tired out and possibly finished. He's just got to do quick strikes, change levels, and keep the guy off balance and kind of overwhelm him with his own physical skills and his own unique style as far as his stand-up, the kind of broken rhythm, distant managing style he has on the feet. So I, I, think, I think Sage wins this. I think it's a good fight for him. They're putting him in this fight because they expect him to win. They're trying to bring him along slowly. They learned their lesson from the first go-round with Sage. But given his inexperience and his, in, his, his inability to take a lot of punishment, every fight's fairly risky with him. But I'm, I'm going to say he probably wins by decision. He, he might finish this guy, but you, you just never know. He, he's, he's so underdeveloped in, in all the aspects of mixed martial arts. So a lot of people are looking at Zach as like a live dog in this fight too, and, I'm, and I, that doesn't really... Uh, surprise me seeing how crazier things have happened in, in, in MMA. Um, I mean, you, you get in the weight class, it's just so hard to hide somebody in that weight class. And Sage is big, he's strong, he's fast, he's quick, but defensively, he has some holes. And, and he's shown that when fights go longer and he's forced into the ground or he's put in position he doesn't want to be, he tends to 
lose focus. He tends to panic a little bit. So the question is, can, can Otto force him into places he doesn't want to be? Can he can he pressure him? Can he get his hands on him? Can he get him up against his cage? Can he take him down? What happens to Sage when he isn't in control of the distance? He is in control of the pace. He's in control of where the fight's taking place. When that thing, when those things have, don't happen, he tends to lose. He hasn't shown an ability to work through rough spots when he's being dominated and he's forced to he's f- forced to be places he doesn't want to be at. And Otto is a good enough athlete and a hard enough hitter and a strong enough guy to force him into spots he doesn't want to be in. I'm thinking Sage is going to try to navigate that, but at some point. I think he should be put in a spot where he doesn't want to be at, and we're going to see how good Sage really is. Because in previous fights, every time he got put in a spot he didn't want to be at, he's tapped out. He, he's essentially just tapped out. He hasn't really had to work through adversity, or he hasn't shown the ability to work through adversity in the, in the biggest spot. Yeah, I mean, you, you're all kind of dead on there. Um, definitely spot on with that with that analysis, sir. Last thing I wanted to talk about tonight, I wanted to look um, also at this Bellator card that's not getting a lot of love. But they got the second I, best featherweight in the world fighting Julia Budd. Correct, and um, I wanted to talk about that there because there's a lot to kind of look at on this card here as well too. So let's be quick here, high level. What are you looking forward to on Bellator 202? Uh, I really want. I'm really into the Julia Budd fight. Her opponent isn't the greatest, but featherweight is so thin. I mean, Bellator's really got the best featherweight division. Now there's a lot of competition for it, especially after this UFC tough season. It's not going to get any better, and she's the number two featherweight in the world i mean it's yet another division where bellator can say we have the best or close to the best person in the world so i I really hope they push bud i hope bud can put on a more impressive performance than her last fight her last fight was good but it was a workmanlike performance it didn't put a stamp on it it didn't really appease the masses like mcfarland's been appeasing the masses in her fights um the main thing is to keep the title but if bud wants to make an impression and kind of make some headway as far as being pushed she needs an impressive win. She needs to show what separates her from the rest of these girls in the division. And um, I really think that this is more of a showcase fight for her. The girl she's fighting is a very good grappler. I don't know that she's the greatest striker. I don't know that she's a better athlete. So I really think expect Bud to kind of work the distance, chop her up at range. She'll ha- have to engage with her on the ground for the most part. But if she plays a fairly safe game, I think she can just kind of control her, chop, chop her up on the feet a little bit controller on the ground and and win another decision but for her to re- really break out she's gonna have to do something impressive does she have it in there i don't know especially with the risk this woman poses on the ground in transition but if she really wants to make a name she's gonna have to do something impressive in this fight so julia bud let's kind of let's play some hypothetical bs here julia's but julia bud versus chris cyborg who do you got oh cyborg kills her but julia bud um, she she'd be even money. She she might be favored over Holly Holm. I know she beats Megan Anderson because she can wrestle. So we know that's going to happen. Um, I mean, right now she'd be the number two girl in the in the UFC UFC featherweight division and probably be getting a fight. Probably would have already had a fight with Cyborg because I, I think she beats Holm and I think she beats Megan Anderson at this stage right now. I mean, she's not like I said. She's not the most dynamic athlete. She's not the most dynamic striker or wrestler. But she's she's good enough in both ranges and she has enough depth in both ranges to not get overwhelmed by either fighter and unlike home and megan who are slowly working in the grappling game but but camp has made that second nature to her she's a very competent grappler she's a very capable wrestler so even if she faced cyborg i think at this stage of her career she could pose some problems because she would be an active threat on the feet she's big enough strong enough to kind of clinch up and work with her a little bit but she's a good enough wrestler where she could come out and maybe put her in some spots that she's not 
normally in, similar to what Tanya Everture did and what Anna uh, Kuniskaya did for a few moments. I think Bud could pull that off, and I think she's a big enough and strong enough featherweight where she could she could be a little bit more effective in those spots because Evinger and, and Kuniskaya did, didn't have the horsepower to really keep Cyborg down or to really look for a submission convincingly. I, I think Bud has the ability. I don't think she wins because she can't handle Cyborg's power, but she could put her in a couple spots for a little bit. Interesting, interesting um, analysis there. It'll be interesting to kind of see what... Um what happens uh, with all with both of these women divisions in Bellator because you're correct they do have some uh contention to say hey we have the divisions that people really want to see yeah they put her in the tough house she walks through everybody i saw that tough contestant list uh yeah, but might kill all that i saw that list too i just definitely um shook shook my head yeah they didn't even put cindy uh i don't know Senator Dandois in there and she's got a win over Megan Anderson, but she can't make it in the UFC as a flat featherweight. I just, it, it, what they, it doesn't make any sense what they do. That's all I can say. I just don't understand how they're working. True, true. Um, what else from this car kind of stands out? Jared Harris is on it, Michael McDonald, uh, Chris Honeycutt. What stands out from this Bellator 202 event? I'm interested to see what they do with Michael McDonald. I mean, he was considered one of their bigger signings, one of their more important signings, and he's, he's got a pretty tough matchup, so it's like, Bellator hasn't had the best luck with their big signings, to be quite honest. So it, it's it's very interesting to see if he ends up being worth the money they put into him and whether he can get his career back on an upswing. He came to the UFC as one of the youngest fighters out there and considered a prodigy, and then he kind of hit a rough patch. And even in the last fight with Bellator, he didn't exactly look spectacular. He didn't look like the athlete we were told he was. He didn't look like the finisher that he used to be. So we're going to – and he's getting he's fighting a guy who's – more than capable of finishing him or forcing him to extend work past work past the pace and work past a distance that he's comfortable with because he he hasn't really been pushed recently. So it, it's interesting to see if he can perform outperform his contract. Um, as far as Jared Harris, he's getting a second chance. So the first fight was short notice. So we all excuse whatever happened in that fight. This fight won't be short notice, and he's trying to extend his career. And we're going to find out if he's going to be able to extend his career based on this performance. He can't, he can't have two bad showings in a row. He really can't afford that at, at this stage if he wants to have any hope of moving up in Bellator, continue to fight with Bellator, or possibly getting back to the UFC. It's going to be another high-profile spot for him. He needs to make the most of it. Interesting there. Interesting, sir. So um, let everybody know what you're working on, man. This has been a pretty busy week. Um, I don't even want to talk about the Brandon Shaw, Dana White thing. That's been... That's been the laughter that I needed for today. Uh, Brandon Shaw basically went full-blown nuclear on uh, Dana White today, so that's been absolutely hilarious to watch. Um, what are some of the other things that, that, that you're working on and let everybody know where they can find your content? Uh, you can find myself on MMA Ratings. I do some work on Combat Press and occasionally on Severe MMA, mostly MMA Ratings. But um, I, it's been a hectic week for me, man. I'm kind of behind on my writing. I was trying to write an article for Zingano, Renault, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to tweet about it. I just couldn't sit down and get myself to to get any of the ideas where they were coherent. It started making sense, and it just go off on a tangent. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to I'm just going to take a break for a little bit and see if I can uh, get my head cleared a little bit because I've been doing a lot of writing and not to make excuses, but the kind of stuff I do as far as you have to watch a lot of tape, you have to pay really close attention, you have to watch and rewatch. And you have to read and reread, and you have to look and relook. It's just a lot, and it, I just 
couldn't come up with anything good. I had all the right ideas, but I couldn't put them together in an article form that would have done the fight justice. And whenever I break down a fighter, break down a fighter, I like to think I take the necessary steps to give them their props, point out the flaws in their game, the strong points of their game, and give a better understanding for the fans. But if I if I'm not able to do that, I'm not going to do the fight because you know I, whether I get paid or not, whether I'm becoming a star or not off it, I do it to educate people and help people make better decisions if they're betting on the fight or when they're watching the fight. And I didn't feel that anything I was doing was, was giving enough where it, it, it would live up to the standards that I've set for myself or what people come to expect from me. Not saying that they expect the world from me, but I feel they come to me for a certain level of analysis and I, I just didn't have it this week. So <laughs> I did not do very much. Hey man, I don't blame you. Sometimes that's kind of needed. I was like Francis Ngannou in the third round, just, I didn't have nothing, man. Do your load. It's all good. So, um, as usual, you can find a lot of my content in the same places, you know, fan-sided, MMA ratings, uh, daily DDT, um, bloody elbow, a whole bunch of crap all over the place, man. It's the same stuff another day. Yeah. Your middle name is hard work. That's you're right That's about that. Your middle name is hard fucking work. And with that in mind, man, we're going to go ahead and close the show out. Because we got more work to get done tonight before I pass out at 2 or 3 o'clock this morning. So let everybody know where they can find our, our content, Sean. Uh, you can find us on YouTube, iTunes, and SoundCloud is mostly where you can find us at. As I've always said, if you all have questions or concerns, you know, please feel free to uh, to come to us. We're, we're always interested in discussing the finer parts, finer points of mixed martial arts. And um, we appreciate your support, and we're going to get some more interviews for you, and we're going to continue to crank out um, top-in interviews and top-in analysis for you over the topics of day and in mixed martial arts. True. Good stuff, man. With that in mind, we're going to close it out. Everybody have a great day. Have a great weekend. And we will talk to you next Thursday with another edition of the, the, the show. All right, sir. You have a good evening. You too, my man. Thank you.